as this is the first time I've preached in this church, I thought maybe I should introduce myself a little bit to let you know who I really am. Uh, my main claim to fame is, is that I am the father of Lyndon. Um, and if Lyndon gives you any problems, don't come and see me. Um, you, you go and see him. Uh, the other claim to fame is I come from the Northern Rivers and was actually born in Mwilumba, uh, even though I never really got to live up in this area uh, really for very long because my father, who was also a pastor, um, went to Avondale just after I was born to train to be a minister and so I've been to Avondale twice, um, both as a little boy and again when I got older. Just prior to my retirement, um, I spent 11 years in Washington DC working at our world headquarters there as an associate secretary or executive secretary as they call it these days and uh, I got to see our world church like I'd never imagined it before and some of the experiences I enjoyed were just the icing on the cake of my ministry and uh, what a tremendous time that was. If you're going to tell people about Jesus, where do you begin? Where do you start? How far back do you go? Now, of course, when Jesus burst onto the public scene, he was 30 years of age. People really didn't know a lot about him and uh, what he'd been doing for those 30 years. There were rumours that when he was born, his mother wasn't married, and that he was born in Nazareth, but of course we know he was born in Bethlehem, exactly where the prophets predicted he would be born. But people began to be interested in his background because of some of the unusual things he began to do as a minister of the gospel. He began to heal people and raise the dead. And they wanted to know a bit more about his background and they couldn't find very much at all as they looked. There was very little that they could find and they did discover that he'd been a carpenter for 18 years and I like to think that he was a woodworker for 18 years and a wonder worker for three. They began to inquire about his early life and they discovered one or two things that uh, were of interest to the community. And they got an unusual glimpse, first of all, when he was a boy of 12 years of age and that was the time when, in those days, you became a man. And he went down to Jerusalem and became involved in his bar mitzvah ceremony. And you know, when a Jewish boy reads the law, it's an indication he is now a man. Before he was 12 years of age, his parents were responsible for him understanding what the law required. But after he was 12, then it was important for him to know what he should do. So Jesus was taken to Jerusalem for his bar mitzvah. And in those days, as people walked, and that was 
the main way of getting anywhere. They normally walk for about 15 miles a day or about 24 kilometres. And I love the way they did this because what happened, the ladies and the children would leave and go first. They would carry the tents and they would carry the food. And when they got to the place for the night and they set up the tents and they got the food ready, the men would arrive. Pretty good arrangements, eh? But when a child was under 12, he travelled with his mother. But when he was over 12, he travelled with his father. And that was the way it happened back in the day of Jesus. And I think we suffer in this country because we don't have any kind of ceremony that recognises a boy when he becomes a man. And so we remain boys for the rest of our lives. And the only difference, they tell me, between men and boys is the price of their toys. So I'm told. But the Jews had a ceremony for when a boy became a man. And when they left Jerusalem... Mary rightly assumed that Jesus would walk with Joseph. That was the way it was done. It was expected he was now a man, he would go with the men. But since he wasn't really Joseph's son, Joseph assumed that he would be with his mother. So when they met up at the camp that evening and Mary and Joseph got to talk to each other, they said, where's Jesus? He's not with me, said Joseph. I thought he'd be with you because he's your son, not mine. And they couldn't find him and they took another day to walk all the way back to Jerusalem and they began to search everywhere for him. They looked everywhere at the right place. The last place they expected to find Jesus was in the temple. Now, one other thing about becoming 12 was, and, and when you become a man, you automatically became a partner in your father's business. You became a, a shareholder in the tradition which your father had been running for quite some time. And they finally came to the temple and they found the boy there, the boy Jesus, asking questions. And he showed by asking questions that he knew more about God than the, the Pharisees did. Mary, with the typical ang anger and anxiousness of a loving mother, said, Jesus, where on earth have you been? Surely you must know that we would be worried about you where you have gone and you're not with us. And Jesus simply says, my father, I'm a man now. Didn't you realize that I would be with my father in his business now? It was an incredible insight when you stop and think about it because Mary said, your father and I have been looking for you. And Jesus says, I am with my father already in his business. God was his father, not Joseph. God was his father. Of course, the early Christians, probably in those first few years, they really didn't know too much about Jesus and his birth. And it was Mary who told the story, and she told it to her doctor, Dr. Luke, 
the only Gentile writer of the whole of Scripture. And she told about how she conceived the baby Jesus. You know, Jesus' birth was absolutely normal. We talk about the virgin birth. It wasn't a virgin birth at all. It was his conception that was virgin. His birth was absolutely normal like any other birth of any other child. The only thing that might have been a little bit different was the shepherds who came and uh, they said they'd seen an angel and they were to follow some stars and some people read that in the Bible and they say, there you are, there's proof that astrology is okay. But when you understand what the basic premise of astrology is, it is that the positions of the stars affect a child when it's born. But in this situation at Bethlehem, it was the position of the baby that affected where the stars were. And you can't make a cause for astrology out of that. It was the conception that was so different. Nobody but nobody has ever been conceived in this way. Never. Nobody. And it makes sense when you understand who Jesus was. It fits in perfectly with the fact that he had a divine father and a human mother. You know, there are virgin births in nature. We, we call this in plants and animals. It's called pathogenesis, parthenogenesis. It, it's when the female egg divides and it creates a new species and it happens. It's quite normal, but never with human beings. A professor of uh, gynecology told me once that there are six ladies that have been noted who claim to have had a virgin birth. Six ladies. It hasn't been proved, it hasn't been verified, and I don't think it ever will. But, uh, be it as it may, these half a dozen women claim that they'd never been with a man and they'd never had their egg fertilised by artificial ways. So these claims have never really been established, but there is one common factor that links these six cases together. One common factor, and that is that all of the babies that were born were girls. They were girls. And it would have to be that way. Because no lady on her own, because her egg is identified as XX, which means I am a girl, the only way a woman's egg can become male is for them to receive the DNA of the male. And then the DNA becomes XY. But let's forget the technicalities. No virgin by herself can produce a baby boy, maybe a girl, and even that's very doubtful, but definitely not a boy. It 
happened only once in the history of this world. It must have been a creative act of God because no man could have possibly produced this. No woman could have done it. God must have taken either one of Mary's eggs and uh, done a little bit of genetic engineering or he created a new fertilized egg and Jesus was born a boy. God was at work in the womb as well as in the tomb. Both before he was dead, uh, sorry, before he was born and after he was dead, the creator of the universe did for Jesus something that has been done for no other human being in the whole of history. So if you want to destroy the Christian faith, these are the two things that you have to destroy. The virgin conception and you have to destroy the resurrection. It's bad enough when bishops try to destroy these two pillars of our faith that they should never be drawing their salary from the church. But have you noticed how the often people try to attack the virgin conception because these are the two poles of our faith that are unique that make us who we are. I want to touch for a moment on the uniqueness of Jesus. And this is where we leave comparative religion far behind because there's nothing comparable to this. There's absolutely nothing. So before he was born and after he was dead, God is saying, this is my son. How far do you go back? Did Jesus live before his conception? And we recall Jesus saying some really funny things sometimes, like, I came to seek and save the lost. He only once said in the whole of the Bible that he was born. On every other occasion, he said, I came. I chose to be a human being. It was a decision of mine that caused this to take place. You and I weren't here before we were born. We had no choice in the matter. Maybe our mother and father did, but you and I never chose to be born. The only human being who ever decided to come here and to be a human being on earth is Jesus Christ. And time and again, he told the people while he was here on earth why he made that incredible decision. The wonder it really just blows your mind and that's the reason why I'm a Christian when I understand that what Jesus did and left all heaven to come down to this earth. Paul said that he was in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but was made in the form of a man. He chose to be. It was a choice he made. It was his decision. Let me try and illustrate it this way, if I may. Suppose you choose to become a tropical fish. How many of you would choose to do that? But just go with me for a little bit. If, if you would be offered the, the possibility of being put in a tank, and if I made you a, 
into a tropical fish, you could go into, the, into that tank and save all the other fish from dying. Would you be persuaded yet? Would, would, you, would you even do it if you knew when you were put in the tank that they were going to destroy you? No? No takers? So let me go just a little bit further. Would you do it if after you were destroyed that you were promised that you would be brought back to life, put in the tank, your fish tank at home? You're alive again. Still a tropical fish. But finally, with one qualification that you would need to remain a tropical fish for the rest of your life. You know, Jesus became a man. He chose to be a man not just for 33 years, but for eternity. Think about that. Think about what he gave up. So where was he and what was he doing before he became a human being? We can't talk about any other historical figure like this. There's no one else on earth that was there before they were born. And according to the narrative, he was born in Bethlehem and that was the beginning, but no, it wasn't. You know, they had a great debate in the early apostolic church about where you begin to tell the story of Jesus. And Mark, the Gospel of Mark, was the first to describe this story. And he said, I'm going to begin when Jesus was 30 years of age, when he was baptized. That's when he broke onto the public scene. So that's where we need to start the story. Matthew comes along and he writes... Secondly, he's the one to write the next story. And he says, no, Mark, you didn't begin early enough. I'm going to begin with the birth of Jesus. I'm going to begin with his conception. In fact, he said, I'm going to go back further than that. I'm going to go back to Abraham. And I'm going to tell the story from then. Then we find Luke writes the story and he said, no, you're both wrong. You've started in the wrong place. I'm going to go back to Adam. And that's where I'm going to begin to tell the story of Jesus. But a little while later, the beloved Apostle John begins to write the story and he picks up from Genesis 1 and verse 1 and he says, In the beginning was the Word and He was already there. And the Word was with God, face to face with God, And the Word was actually God and the Word became flesh and lived right here among us and we saw His glory. That's where you begin to tell the story. You've got to go right back to the beginning and even back further than that. You've got to go right back to the time when the Creator God, Jesus, began to make the trees from which He took the wood to build the furniture that he made when he was a carpenter. He made the mountains, the mountains that became his pulpit when he preached from the mountainside. David Pawson 
It's P-A-W-S-O-N, so it's not Lawson that some may know, but David Pawson tells a story how on one occasion he was preaching in Canada and uh, the sermon that he was about to preach was going to be beamed on television across Canada and the US. It was the first time that they allowed a sermon or a religious meeting to be held at Niagara Falls. And there he stood with the cameras facing him and picking up as well that water, three million gallons of water rushing over there every second. What a stage he had. No religious meeting ever been there before. And here he is about to preach in front of the Niagara Falls. I couldn't think of a better place to go and preach a sermon. David begins his sermon and he says, I'm so happy to have this backdrop for my sermon. I happen to know the man who made Niagara Falls. And some of the people looked at him askew and thought, this guy's a bit crazy. But he said, I met him when I was 17 years of age and his name is Jesus and without him nothing was made. Who was God talking to when he said, let us make man in our image? Jesus was there at the beginning of creation and he'll be there at the end, if there is an end, end of this world. But what about the eternal world to come? He started it all off and he will finish it off. He is the Alpha and Omega. That's unique How can you compare Jesus with anyone else? How can you teach him alongside any other being? You can't. You know, the word history really is his story. And that's where you begin and that's where you end. His life is as long as the universe and and longer. As his human life was bracketed by two creative acts of God which were unique and which have happened to no one else. That indicates for us that his life stretches through eternity and right through the whole of history. I have a history book at home. It finishes its records in 1988. Nothing recorded after that. But my Bible goes a good deal further than that. I don't know why people who want to know the future don't pick up their Bible and read it. Do you know that altogether in the Bible, there are at least 735 separate events that have been predicted? 735. Some of them only once. One of them more than 300 times. And you know what that is? That's the second coming of Jesus, 318 times. Do you know how many of these predictions have all been fulfilled? Someone has counted it, 596 have been fulfilled. Does that mean that the Bible's only 81% accurate? No, not at all. You know, there are still some events to be fulfilled before Jesus comes and there are many to be fulfilled after he comes. 
and they are the ones that we're waiting on that are yet to happen. So why do people need to read horoscopes when they've got the Bible that will tell them all they need to know about the future? Now it's uh, time for me probably to begin to wind up. Notice I said begin. Paul was always saying in his letters lastly, but he would last for quite a bit after that. And I might take just a little bit of that license. This means that the two greatest facts of our faith are these. On the one hand, the Creator became a creature. We call that the incarnation. That's the first great act of our faith. The Creator became a creature. Charles Wesley, in one of his hymns, puts it this way, Our God contracted to a span incomprehensibly was made man. That the fullness of the Godhead could be revealed in a being of about five foot ten inches high, a human being like you and me, is hard to comprehend. The second is this. Not only does the Creator become a creature, but the cross becomes the crux. Why has the cross become a symbol of our faith? We see it everywhere around the world on our churches and other denominations. God must have had an amazing purpose for Jesus to die. He could have before his death revealed him as the Son of God. He could have done great miraculous things that would have drawn the attention of the world to this great Son of Man. But he didn't do that because Jesus came not to live so much but to die. And may I suggest that dying was more important than living. And that's why Jesus let, God let him die. These two facts are really the heart of our faith. The creator becomes a creature and the cross becomes the crux. This means we have a faith that means two things. It is both exclusive and inclusive. First, our faith is exclusive. You can't syncretize the Christian religion with any other religion. You can't mix religions. You can't bring Christ into the pantheon. You can't put a statue of Jesus alongside other gods. It doesn't work. You can't do it. At the end, Christ will have replaced all other gods and other religions and churchianity. In the last days, the only reality will be Christ and everything will be summed up in Him. And this is why we are exclusive as Christians. There is such a thing as comparative religion, but you can't include Christianity in that. You can't put Christianity, it is just so different to all of the other isms and all the other religions. And it is why we have to preach that salvation is found in no one else other than Jesus Christ. None of the isms can save you. No other name can save you. The only name that can save is Jesus. 
Now, this raises a couple of questions that I need to try and answer a little bit. I could preach a sermon on each one of them, but just a few guidelines to help us understand. What about those who have never heard the name of Jesus? What happens to them? The second question is, what about all these other religions? Are there many roads leading to the same point, the same destination? Regarding those who have never heard the Bible or Jesus, you know, I've noticed that those who ask that question are often people who have heard about Jesus, who have heard about the Bible, but they don't want to do anything about it, and so they're looking for an excuse that God is unjust because there are people who won't hear, and then that's not fair. So usually when I hear someone say that, what about those who haven't heard? I say, well, oh, that's great. You want to be a missionary and go and tell everyone? Is, is that what you're trying to say? The Bible tells me that all people on earth have had some light and will be judged by the light they have. A person who has never heard of Jesus will never be judged because they've never heard of Jesus. That would be grossly unjust. But they will be judged by the light they have. And the New Testament makes it very clear that those who have never heard of Jesus, who have never heard of the church, who have never read the Bible, have had some light through two channels. They've had it from outside of themselves in creation and they've had it from inside themselves through their conscience. For a person who has never heard about Jesus to be saved only needs to say, I have always done what my conscience told me. Who on earth can say that? So the New Testament says that all have had some light and some have had more light. What about other religions? Let me make a couple of statements about this to help you think it through. On the question of those who have never heard, the two statements are, all have had some light and some have had more, and we shall be judged by living according to that light. On the question of other religions, none are wholly false. I guess most of us appreciate that fact. There's good in all religions. There are things in those religions that are true. You find, for example, that the Muslims believe in the judgment. They believe in heaven. They believe in hell. They believe in the mercy of God. They believe all that. But they don't believe in Jesus Christ, that he was the Son of God, the very one who could save them. You see, you will find some truth in all religions, but you'll also find some error. And unfortunately, the traditions of men have been mixed in with the, the truth as it is in the Word of God, and so this is why we have so many denominations. But Christ is the truth. He is the only one who has the whole truth. And I'm a Seventh-day Adventist today because I believe we have the truth. 
And it is by Christ's light of the world that we can see what is true and what is false in religion. So that you can say that all other religions are wrong. You say, I expect to find some truth in most religions. And how will I know which is which? By judging all of their teachings according to the teachings of Jesus himself. Some of you may have heard of the name of Shandu Ray. Um, Shandu Ray's mother was a devout Hindu. And she took her son to hundreds of shrines to worship. And she would leave butter and flour as an offering to those stone gods that they would visit so often. Utterly sincere completely given to the religion that they believed in. But Shandu Ray knew that he still hadn't found God. He was still looking. And God was going to honour that. And he made a friend of a Christian boy. This Christian boy had a problem with his eyes and he needed to have surgery. And so Shandu went into the hospital the night before his surgery And uh, he said to the boy with the poor eyesight, he said, is there anything I can do for you? And the young boy said, yes. He said, my eyes are all bandaged. I can't see anything. Would you read the Bible for me? And Shandu Ray picked up his, the boy's Bible there and he he just let it flop open. You know, this is not the kind of uh, theology we normally teach. You don't uh, just pray to God and say, let the Bible flop open but on this occasion it did and it fell open to John 14 and Shandu read I am the way the truth and the life no man comes to the father but by me and Shandu said to the boy is that what you really believe do you really believe that and the boy said yes I believe that Jesus is the way the truth and the life And Chandu said to the Christian boy, he said, have you told God about your eyes? Have you asked him to heal you? Have you asked him to make you well? The next morning came, the boy was, Christian boy was wheeled into the operating theatre. Chandu had asked the surgeons if he could be there to see what would take place and the surgeon began to unwrap the bandages off the boy's eyes and when he noticed the boy's eyes he noticed a glint in his eyes and he he recognized the surgeon and he was able to see him clearly and the surgeon says I don't think we need to operate and Shandu Ray says that was the moment I knew that Jesus was the way the truth and the life. You know, a person who's really seeking God sincerely will welcome Jesus when he finds him. That's the test of someone trying to follow God's leading in his life. You know, you've heard stories of many missionaries that have come into a, a, a village and they find them there worshipping somebody, keeping the Sabbath, living the, the right kind of life, And that's when the missionary comes and says, ah, 
now we know his name, the name of the one we've been worshipping. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. So those are my guidelines for those two crucial questions. Now this really is my last point, and I know that's not a, a good way to preach a sermon, but it is. We've already said that Christianity is exclusive. It cannot mix with others. It cannot combine in united efforts with any other thought or theme. It has to stand by itself because Jesus Christ stands by himself. But that means that it is not only exclusive, but it is inclusive. It is the faith for everyone. If Jesus is the way and the only way, he is the way for the whole world. He's not just the way for the whites and the Anglo-Saxons and the people of one race. He's the way for everyone. And if you believe that Jesus is the way, then you have to tell everyone. If you believe that he is a way, then doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. You don't need to tell anyone about it. So we really don't have any choice, friends. It's not a question of what right have I got to persuade someone to change their faith. It is what responsibility do I have to tell them about the way, the truth and the life. If you knew a cure for cancer and you didn't let anyone else know, what would you think of yourself? If you had the answer to many of the world's problems and you didn't share them, what a terrible person you would be. God forgive us if we keep such good news to ourselves. Jesus said, go you into all the world and make disciples for me, baptizing them, telling them and showing them how to do everything I've told you. Go and preach the gospel. Let me say this very clearly. Jesus didn't come to the earth to give a religion to some people. Think about that. Jesus didn't come to this earth to give a religion to some people. He came to bring the truth to everyone, to everyone. Evangelism is not a question of persuading people to change their religion, but to get in touch with reality. He is the truth by which we may judge all other opinions. There is some good in the isms that we spoke about earlier. We need to be concerned about the, the oppressed. We need to be concerned about the environment. But none of that will really save you. Jesus is life. The world is going to have to choose between the isms and the I am. You know, it's only one letter, I-S-M or I-A-M. Ism or I am, that's the choice. So friends, we welcome the Lord Jesus as our empathising brother, flesh of our flesh, bone of our bone, but we worship him as the everlasting father, the prince of peace, the king of kings, the lord of lords, the Alpha and the Omega, the bread of heaven, the good shepherd, the light of the world, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth and the life, the Lion of Judah, 
the lamb that was slain, the yes to every promise of God, son of man, son of David, son of Mary, son of God, the only ruler of princes, the bridegroom, the one who was and who is and who is to come. What will you do with Jesus? Let's pray. Loving Father in heaven, if we lift up Jesus, all men will be drawn unto you. Lord, give us words to speak, lives to live, that we may lift him up the way, the truth, and the life. Bless us, Lord, as we leave this place. May Jesus reign supreme in our hearts, that others may come to know him too. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.